Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 56. Before we do do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this morning. We're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful that we can gather, praising your name, hearing from you. We ask, Father, that you would be gracious to us and teach us and instruct us and correct us and, and help us. Help us in every way. You know exactly where we, we're at this week, what's going on in each individual heart and mind. You know where everybody's life is at and the things we struggle with. You know what we need, Father. Feed us and strengthen us this morning. Grant us tremendous help. Work in our hearts by the Spirit through your word. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. I would venture to bet that most of you in this room love good news. Enjoy good news. Appreciate good news. Because I know I do. I know I, I, I seriously appreciate good news, and I like it when things, good things happen, as most of us probably do. I like it when a relative calls to tell us something great has happened. I like it when my kids give me good news about their last test. I like it when, my, uh, I, like it when I find out that a friend has gotten married or is having a child or you know, various things like that. We like it, right? We like good news. As much as we like good news, no one has ever received better news than Mary receives in this text before us this morning. The best news a person could ever hear happens in our text. And this morning, we're going to look closely at this good news. And why is it such good news? Because for us, perhaps it gets lost. It gets lost in translation. It gets lost in in cultural context. It gets lost because we've perhaps heard these words before. But what does it mean? What was Mary hearing? And why was this announcement of good news so such good news? And not only for her, but for us here this morning. And this is what we're going to see this morning. This this place is so different than the last place. You guys feel so far back and detached. <laughs> yeah, all, all these empty seats up here. and uh, Would everybody mind moving forward? This is very, it's really weird for me, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, just... Yeah, sit, come up front, because this is, uh, is really feeling strange, like I'm completely detached from you guys. Uh, either, either you guys come forward, or I'm going to walk down there. And... Much better. Yeah, exactly. starting to feel like it's practice or something. There we go. You guys feel more connected now? Like, All right. No sleep. No sleeping now. Uh-oh. <laughs> Can you guys move back a little? 
All right, so this, this whole scene begins in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And it starts by saying, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel has sent, was sent sorry, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, what is he doing here? All of a sudden, he sets the context, right? Once again, just like we saw last week, all of a sudden, there's something is about to happen, and they tell us where it's going to happen and what's going on. Now, there were, this is in the sixth month. Now, the sixth month in the, in the calendar of the Hebrews, this would be the Feast of Tabernacles. This is when they would be the, the Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles time of year. And what we just f- finished happening was six months earlier when Gabriel shows up, and that would have been the time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. But here we, so we have this six-month thing, and the angel Gabriel shows up. Now, whenever the angel Gabriel shows up, guess what? Big news. Big news is about to happen. This is what happens when Gabriel shows up. He brings news from God that is earth-shattering. It's very big news. He just doesn't show up any old time. If you look in Scripture, it's very few times he shows up, and when he shows up, he has some big news. It's an important task he has from God. And he comes to the city called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was not a city like we understand city. The reason why they translate city is because the Greeks have no other word. Their city's city. Everything's a city. They don't have city, town, and all these different hamlets and different names. They have a city. Nazareth is about 2,000 people. We wouldn't call that a city. It's a small town. So don't get the idea here that he's showing up to this big metropolis. He's not. This is like this small little town, Nazareth. He shows up to, and he shows up to this virgin, it says, virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, in that particular culture, this betrothal is important because the way it works is that often fam- marriages were arranged, and what would happen is families would get together and make a covenant. They would contract, so to speak, saying that your daughter and my son will become married. Deal? Deal. Let's sign a covenant, a contract. And what sealed that was the dowry given from the, the, son's, the son, the son's parents, to the bride's family. They would pay a sum of money. And, and I don't know exactly what that sum of money was, but sometimes it's a fairly hefty price. And it could take a while for it to actually be paid. So sometimes in this, in this particular culture, they could actually be betrothed for quite some time. They, they could actually... It could be several years, and it could be, give time for the dowry to be paid. But also, here's something else significant. It's so binding that the only way to get out of this would be through a written contract of divorce. So they would actually, people could get divorced before they actually were, in our understanding of the word, married. So when they're betrothed, they're covenanted already together to be married. And this is why in Matthew, Joseph was going to give her a letter of divorce, a written letter of divorce, and put her away privately to save her and protect her because he found out that she was with child. Now, that's, that has all kinds of implications and complications in that culture, as you could imagine. So here we have this virgin betrothed. Now, we got to understand, this, is, this girl is like a junior high girl. Young, a young virgin, often ready for marriage, about to be married, was about 14 or 15 years old. Now, once again, we don't even understand that in terms, we think, wow, what are kids doing getting married? What's this junior high girl 
about to get married. That's just crazy. Well, you know, wait, what are you, what are you thinking? But here, this is how it worked then. And especially if they were betrothed, betrothed at a younger age, Mary was already planned to be together with Joseph. So this is a fixed, and now Mary's 14, 15 years old, this young girl, and Gabriel shows up to her. And he comes to her, and he brings her this incredible news. He calls her, he says this, Greetings, O favored one. O favored one. Which clearly makes sense. Makes sense that she's the favored one. And why do I say that? Well, she's about to be told something spectacular. She's favored, highly favored, because she has been chosen by God to be the mother of the God-man, Jesus, who had saved the world from their sins. So for that to happen, she's highly favored highly favored of God. It isn't because Mary's just, wow, spectacular lady, so perfect, so good, never done anything wrong. And when I'm looking around the earth, I'm trying to find a young girl who just, who, who, who rises to the occasion. This can be one that is just spectacular, perfect. That's not what God does. He, he chooses her by grace because this is a, a young virgin who's, who, who needs to be a young virgin, according to prophecy, that he chooses for this particular purpose. And because of that, she's highly favored. And for no other reason. We can't think of her. Many people have drawn doctrine from this passage, particular Roman Catholics, and, and have come to the conclusion that this is, she's highly favored because she's perfect. There's not, no flaw with her. She is actually could be God herself because she's, she's so pristine. There's no flaw with this lady. That's not true at all. And so the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, as you can imagine, at this uh, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. No one, people don't normally show up, especially an angel Gabriel, who I I looked at last week, is just, you know, one stout, glorious, amazing creature that often can be conducive toward worship. They're so amazing. And she is greatly troubled. Once again, this is what Zacharias experienced, right? Zacharias was, fear came upon him, and she's greatly troubled by this greeting because not only is it, is it odd to be greeted in such a way, but it's also odd to be greeted by such a being with such splendor, glory, and majesty. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, because now he goes on to explain why this is significant. What's the importance here? What's the good news? This is why this is such astounding news. Verse 30. Do not be afraid, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, why is that important? Right out of the gate, he says something about his name. You shall call his name Jesus. Well, when you give people a name... In that culture, you don't just give them a name because it's cool. Hey, I like the sound of that one. You know, they don't flip through the registry or flip through these, you know, these catalogs to find a really nice sounding name. That's not what they do. Typically, what they do is they find a family name, and then in addition to that, they want to have a very specific name, almost a prophetic name. They place a name on you, determining almost in a sense who it is you're going to be and what it is you're going to be like. And he says, his name shall be called Jesus and that's significant because Jesus, as you've probably heard, I'm sure before, Jesus in Greek is, is the Hebrew word translated from the Hebrew 
Joshua. So Joshua is the same word as, as Jesus. Now, why is that important? Why is calling him, if he were given a Hebrew name, he would have been called Joshua, but in Greek it's called, he's called Jesus. Because it defines who he is, right, and what he's about to do. Mary doesn't fully understand the ramifications of this yet. Because she thinks, like all, all of Israel, she thinks, she, she understands when she hears this word Jesus that, okay, this is Joshua. And if anything, if she's thinking about this and she took time to dwell on it, the name Jesus would be Joshua. Could this mean that this J- Joshua is going to be like the Joshua of old? To lead God's people to lead God's people over their enemies so that they would enjoy the land once again in freedom and peace over their enemies. That's probably what she's thinking. If anything, if you're, you're the highly favored one of God and you're going to have a child and this child's going to be named Joshua in Hebrew, she's probably starting to think, could this be the one who delivers, delivers God's people? Because that... Yahweh, the name Joshua means Yahweh brings salvation. Because he the one, he's the one who will bring salvation. So here we have a new Joshua, the one bringing salvation. And of course we know and she knows a lot more than she did back then. But at the time, this would have caused her to maybe perhaps start thinking, wow, could this be the one who comes to deliver us from our enemies? That would have been exciting news. They all, they all would have thought, and this is how they thought, the coming Messiah would be this crusader who brought freedom through the, through the sword, just like Joshua. What did Joshua do? Joshua leads God's people into the promised land, triumphing over his enemies, right? And so when you think we've got the new Joshua, the great Joshua showing up, what's he going to do? God's leader who will lead God's people to triumph into the promised land, to triumph over his enemies and bring peace and bring prosperity. But as she knows now, given some time, she was all wrong. The salvation Jesus brought was so much better than that. Her sins, Mary's sins, are now forgiven She has life eternal, and the kingdom is hers now for eternity because of what this Joshua has done. The liberation he brought, the salvation of Yahweh he brought was a salvation that she didn't even fully understand, but was so much better. And in fact, this salvation was so incredibly good, so great, that here we are now in Linwood, on the other side of the world, having experienced this grace, having experienced the salvation. It's a salvation. She had a child who's bringing salvation to the world, and here we are worshiping her son, praising her son. She was going to have the the son that would bring salvation, but bring it in such a powerful way that the whole world would be transformed. Powerfully. I remember... It's, it's going to be close to 30 years soon, 30 years ago, when I was converted. And I remember hearing about this Jesus, this Jesus who saves. And under, starting, as I was starting to understand who I was and how sinful I was and, and my desperate need of someone to save and deliver me. I remember the night that I gave my life to Christ, 
And what, that, what happened? It was such a powerful salvation experientially when I realized the grace of God and I, and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of my sins. Receiving the forgiveness of my sins and being delivered from sin and death was remarkable. It felt like literally I was lying on my bed as if I was hovering two feet above the sheets. I felt like I experienced a burden being lifted that was indescribable. Almost as if I had a backpack on me that weighed 10,000 pounds, but I didn't know it. And then he took it all away from me. And when he took it away from me and I experienced this freedom, this, this sense of deliverance from guilt and shame, it was literally as if I was floating. That's how it felt to me. That's the power of Jesus to deliver from sin and death, from guilt and shame. Jesus literally, the power of this one to save is remarkable. It's just not ordinary. It's extraordinary. The way he can deliver from guilt and shame, from sin and death, isn't just isn't words to say Jesus will deliver. He literally delivers and sets free. He takes people who are trapped in death and condemnation and guilt and in shame and washes them clean and sets them free in a way that everybody who's, who knows the freedom says, Amen! He brings a freedom that's it's hard to even describe. It's so amazing. This is the one, this is the Joshua that was... that Mary was going to have. She was going to have a a son, and his name was going to be called Jesus, and that name is significant. He was going to save his people from their sin. Yahweh would bring salvation. Now imagine that you were told that you would have a child, and this child was going to deliver his people, and she doesn't even get the ramifications of this from their sin, even if it was just their people. You're going to have the child that will deliver them. That's pretty exciting news. But she had no idea how exciting. She had no idea how great. Now she does. But at the time of this announcement, she didn't know. But he goes on to say something else that's pretty spectacular. The angel Gabriel not only says that this salvation, this, this one to come, this Jesus, he'll be named Jesus, but he says something else. If you look in verse 32, after he says, you shall call his name Jesus, he says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now, this is actually very similar to what he said about John. He said John was going to be great, but for completely different reasons. He doesn't go on to say he'll be great and he says what he's going to do. He's great because of, he's a forerunner to Jesus and he's great because he's a humble man. But here, Jesus will be great And he will be, what does it say? He'll be called the son of the most high. This is significant. Once again, think of Mary. She wouldn't even really know how to think about this. He's going to be the son, called the son of the most high. What does that mean? Does it mean that he's just going to fulfill, he's going to be the one, he's going to be the son of the most high, called that because he fulfills prophecy? Is he going to be called that because, because he's in some way would be connected to God in a real special way? Why? Why is he going to be called the son of the most high? Mary obviously would not have time to realize at that point that not only is he going to be called the son of the most high, called it says here, he is, he is the son of the most high. 
So it's not just given a name called that. That the one you're about to give birth to is the actual son of the Most High. Isaiah 9, 6, which was read for us this morning, it says, For to us a child, actually it's 9, 2, sorry. For us to, a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, notice the two things there. What does it say? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is what? Is given. So a child is born, but a son is given. So that's pretty unique. It's an interesting situation. He's, he's born as a man, but he's the son of God eternal given, the God-man. And this is what it says about him. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, which, okay, I get it. He's Messiah. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And here's the one I want us to notice. You know what his name shall be called? Mighty God. Jesus is going to be called not the most, the son of the most high God, but here in Isaiah it says he's actually going to be called, he is mighty God, God in the flesh. This is, this is unbelievable. So to be told you're going to have the son of God is like being told that you will reside, that in you will reside the one that created heaven and earth. Now imagine that. And you're told that in you is going to reside the per... How is this possible? That the most high God, the son of the most high God, to think of this, that in you is going to reside the one who creates heaven and earth. Unbelievable. I'm sure even Gabriel was astounded. (laughs) Gabriel probably can't even believe the news he's announcing. You know, Gabriel's told this, but even as we find out in Peter, he says these are things that even the angels long to look into. That God's unfathomable mysteries as they're unfolding. He's not telling everybody. He's telling Gabriel, go tell her this is what's going to happen. And this is, you know, he's got to be processing himself, thinking, how is this? How is this possible that she's going to have the son of the most high? He knows the son. He knows the word of God. He knows the eternal word of God. He, know, he knows enough to be going, wow, this is, this is amazing. You can see how awesome this per- term is, the son of the most high, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus, remember he comes up on the hills of that crazy man who's full of all kinds of demons? And this is what he says to him from the hills in verses 6 through 10. And when he saw Jesus from afar, this is the crazy man, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? This is, this is what he says next. Son of the Most High God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he This demon begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Kind of weird, odd. What's going on there? Don't send us out of the country. Or don't send us into the abyss. These demons see Jesus and they know immediately who this is. This is the son of the most high God. You know, the, uh, the disciples probably... What is going on here? Uh, this is really what happens so often with Jesus is his disciples are 
they're kind of like taken back. Like, who is this person? And how is it that these demons, they like, oh, we know exactly who you are. And notice something. Don't just know who he is. Notice what they do, how they respond. They understand his authority. He actually is the one who can say whatever he says to them will happen. It's like they know it. It's a foregone conclusion. And right away, immediately, what are they asked? They go to him and they say to him, um, they asked him and begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And so what, we know the story, right? They asked to be placed into the pigs, the herd of swine. And so he says, okay, gives them permission. And the son of the Most High gives them permission, so they go into the swine, and then they go, it's kind of bizarre, like headlong over the cliff into the, into the ocean and die. It's like, oh, I thought they wanted to live somehow. I don't get this. But, but beside all those points, what's astounding here is how even the demons acknowledge and understand the Son of the Most High has incredible power that they must submit to, they must answer to. The demons recognize it. Jesus being the Son of the Most High means something for you here this morning. It means something. Just as it meant something for Mary, this incredible news that when you have the Son of the Most High, you have the one who has all authority and power over angels and demons and everything that exists. At his word, creation leaps and jumps. And this one is on your side. This one is Jesus, your salvation. This one is your advocate with the Father. This is the one who dies for you. This is the one who gives himself for you, who blesses you, who seeks to minister to you. You know, this is the one who's here now. Right now, in this room, whether you know it or not, he's here. How is he here? By his Spirit. The Spirit of God is here amongst us. There's nowhere you can't get away from him, but he's here in a special way because we are gathered in his name. And therefore, the Son of the Most High is here, ministering among you. And he does that by the Spirit. We know physically that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, given all authority and power and rule as truly the Son of the Most High. But the Son of the Most High isn't just detached and away far away, and we just gather here and we try to remember him. You know he's actively moving and working, and he's powerfully involved in our lives right here, right now. You have the one who's the most powerful being in the universe who's on, who's on your side, who is with you, who will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus the most powerful being that exists, which demons must submit to in a moment, is with you. And because of that, this is why Christians throughout the ages have all had authority over demons. Not them. They didn't. It's because the demons get this way better than we do. They see, they understand, they know authority, and they know that if this one speaks, they must listen. They have to do what he says. So Jesus has given his, with us and allowed us to be attached to him and to his name. And so throughout the ages, why is it that, that humans have had authority over demons? Well, the only way they've had authority is because they're in Christ. And in Christ, the demons even recognize that. You remember in the book of Acts? The demons can recognize who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. And remember the, the charlatan who figured he would... Uh, try this whole Jesus name thing out? 
and he starts rebuking the demons, and the demons kick the stew out of him and leave him for naked and throw him out of the room. He said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? I don't recognize you because you're not connected to him. See, they get it. They know who you're connected to. They know that you belong to Jesus and he's the son of the most high. And at that point, that's, what, that's what's so incredibly special about this is because he's the one with all power and authority and rule over anything. And you belong to him. He is yours. He abides in you now by the spirit. It's an amazing truth. And this is the one Mary is told she's going to have. But she's, it goes on to say something else, which for her, this would have been the most significant at the time of hearing it. Not only is she going to name him Jesus, he's the son of the most high, but it says in the latter part of verse 32, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Bingo. This, this is big news. She gets this right away. You know, back up. Look at verse 27 if you back up for a moment. She's betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. And who's Joseph? He's of the house of David. Very significant. Joseph is of the house of David. He's of the lineage of David. The king could come through Joseph. And this one is going to sit. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. And he, in verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you realize that this particular statement is a fulfillment of the promise that all of Israel is deeply longing for? They can't wait for it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verses 12 and 13, it says, When your days are fulfilled, this is God promising David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you, uh, up your offspring after you. You shall come, who, sorry, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you realize that that particular promise, Israel, knew better than almost any other promise because under the reign of David, Israel had never known such conquest over their enemies, such a time of peace, such a time of blessing, such a time of glory. It was Israel's highlight. It was Israel's pinnacle moment. And so when they have the promise of one of David's sons coming who sit on his throne forever, This was one that they knew real well. They know these words. He'll be sit on the throne of David. What? This is Messiah. Instantly she knows this is Messiah. That's what that means. And he's what he's going to do, he quotes basically from the promise. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's exactly what's said in the promise. She hears that, wow, I'm going to have the Messiah? This, nothing greater could have been said for Israel. Nothing more clear for her could have been understood. In that particular age and time, just imagine for a moment, if we were um, living under an oppressive regime and, and we all, you know, there was a, we had to pay heavy taxes. Well, wait a second, you know. Um, <laughs> don't imagine. <laughs> yeah. 
But just if you were promised and you lived in, in, as a nation, another nation ruled over you, oppressed you, and f- was, there was forced labor, there was slavery, there's all kinds of complications and difficulties that made this difficult to live. Living was hard, but you had been promised for hundreds of years, and you know that one day God was going to raise up somebody, who a leader who would deliver your people, who would reestablish the glory days who reestablished the days when everything was great and it was gravy and good and there was blessing and it was just, it was amazing. There was peace, there was prosperity, it was just overflowing. But you knew that one day God was going to do that, restore that, because that's, what the, that's how the promise read to them. And so you, you had this longing. It was like a national identity. People talked about it. It was news to them. This is the thing they long for. They look forward to the day when Messiah would come and deliver them. Actually, around every corner, they were constantly thinking, is it he? Is, it, is he the one? There was actually false messiahs rising up all over the place at this time because the kind of the setting seemed about right. Is he the one? Is he the one? There were those who were rising up and saying, saying they were the one, but they got found out. But here, Mary is told from Gabriel, from God himself, the one who dwells in God's presence, that no, this is the one, this is the time, and guess what? You're the mother. But gee, obviously, you know, we know something. Jesus wasn't the Messiah they expected, was he? He, he, he kind of caused them to scratch their heads and saying, is now the time of the kingdom? Are you going to establish <laughs> your throne and, and rule over enemies and deliver us from these crazy Romans and so that we can have the blessing of the land once again? He was quite different. He went about, he did go about extending his borders, his kingdom, but not through the sword and chariot, did he? That's not how he did it. He did it by loving the lost, freeing the captives, teaching his disciples, and training those who would continue in his path to extend the kingdom to the four corners of the earth. He did it in a way that was bizarre. If you watch him walk around and what he's doing, and he's saying the kingdom of God is among you. And what was he doing? As the kingdom was affecting and touching people's lives, he was freeing them from their sin, delivering captives from affirmities. He was setting, he was setting people free from demon possession. Jesus was about delivering people, wasn't he? The kingdom was touching people's lives. They were experiencing the power of this kingdom, but not in a way that they had thought. They, the Romans were still ruling over them. It wasn't a political move at all, but it was a powerful move. Spiritually, there was all kinds of deliverance happening. He truly was the Messiah. And you know what? He extended and he grew and he continued to grow in a way that was still always odd and strange. And yet he, he died and rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then what does he give his church? He gives his church the mission to go and extend this kingdom. Extend this kingdom to the four corners of the earth. Take it everywhere. And how do you do that? Well, you do it the way he did it. It's always strange and odd in, in some ways. To see its power and how effectively it is to be moved forward. And do you realize... That when the way that Jesus is going to extend the kingdom, even here in the city of Linwood, is through you. Through me, through you, this is the plan. Through his church, he's going to extend his kingdom. Continue to see this go forward in power. And what he's calling us to, 
Do you know what he's calling us to? Once he washes you, once he cleanses you, once he brings you into his family, once he says, you're mine, you're my child, you're my children, he says, no, you know the blessings of the kingdom. Our calling now is to go extend the blessings of the kingdom. Take that kingdom to the ends of the earth. Take that kingdom into your house. Take that kingdom into your neighborhood. Take that kingdom into your workplace. Extend it. That's what we're called to. We're called to extend this kingdom. Now, now the next question is, well, how do we do this? So a lot of times we, we, we immediately think, oh, it means that we go preach. No. Not everybody's called to be a preacher, but everybody's called to be an extender. Everybody's called to go out there and have the kingdom touch other people's lives. Do you realize that every one of us here have a mission? A mission to extend the kingdom beyond these walls, out there into the city, into your workplaces, into your homes and neighborhoods and everywhere you go. And you know when we extend the kingdom, when, we, when the kingdom presses forward, is when it touches people's lives. Touches their lives. If we're just being nice and smiley-faced people and going about our own business, doing our own thing, we're not extending the kingdom. But as we go and we actually touch people's lives in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and wherever we are at, because wherever I'm at, I have the ability to reach out and touch and extend my life to other people's lives, impact a life. You have the ability, wherever you're at, in this room or wherever you go this afternoon or wherever you continue to go, wherever you're at, you have the ability to impact people's lives, to extend the kingdom. That's your mission is to extend it. And, and, you know, if we think for a moment that we come here on Sunday mornings, we know we get, a little, we get a little worship, we get a little time together, we get a little talk, sermon up front here, we get a little few words, we get a little something, and then we go off about it in our lives and business. We're not understanding what we're called to. We're all to be on mission always, extending the kingdom. We're to go and love as we've been loved. We're to go act and touch people's lives as our lives have been touched. So our, we, we all have a call to go into the world in which we've been placed and not just be a fly in the wall, not just be the kind of get through life, not just kind of like, you know, make sure, get the most comfort that we can out of this particular day, not just kind of to mind our own business. No, we're to go and extend the kingdom. That's what we're called to to be kingdom extenders and allow that kingdom of God that you've experienced, that you know, that you've realized to touch other people's lives. We live in a particular day and age where everybody seems to really like to mind their own business, so to speak. Just do your own thing. Just function in your own little world and go about your own little day doing your own little thing and not realizing the impact we could have on people's lives by taking the initiative and reaching out. The kingdom of God has touched you. You've been ministered to. Jesus has come to you, but he hasn't just come to you so that you can be ministered to personally and privately and then go go home and enjoy that. The walls are falling off. (laughs) Yeah, we were there and the walls were coming down. Every single one of us here, 
We've experienced the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ, the salvation he brings, the power that he brings, being the son of the most high, and the, the, the kingdom that he brings. He sits on the throne, of his, uh, the throne of David and rules forever. Do you know why? Do you know what his plan is? His plan is to extend his kingdom throughout the earth, all across, so every corner of the earth is touched. And do you know how he does that? Through you. Through you. When you touch somebody's life, when you go to work, do you make a difference in people's lives? When you go home, do you make a difference in their lives? When you go wherever you go, whatever you do, when you go and you're in your neighborhood, do you touch people's lives? Or do you just simply mind your own business, go about your thing? In a lot of ways, I think we mind our business and go about our own things simply because we don't have any vision for it. We don't even understand. We don't even think. It's not on our, on our mindset. I know if I'm not thinking about it, I'm not doing anything about it. But if I'm thinking about my neighbors, the people I, I'm around, if I think about even, even coming here, do I just come here to receive or do I come here to give? Well, of course you come here and you, uh, hopefully you do receive. But how, what kind of mindset do we bring wherever we're at, wherever we go? Do we seek to extend what it is we've received? Are people's lives touched by us? Is the world different because of us? Do you go to your neighbors? Do you, do you go to the people around you and seek to reach out and touch? Because that's, it, it's, it's got to be active, not passive. And it's got to be... It's got to be particular, and it's got to be practical. We've got to do things for others and touch their lives. And maybe it's a kind word. Maybe it's saying something to them, doing something for them, but having the mindset of how do, how do we extend the kingdom and touch people's lives? That's really what we, where it comes to ultimately. We receive that we might give. We don't receive that we might just simply purely sit here and enjoy, and then that's it. Jesus has come, and he came into the earth, and he came to Mary to give, the, to, give to the world salvation, to give to the world power and deliverance and freedom and goodness and blessing, so that we might know his kingdom, and that that might overflow and extend itself to the people around us, the people we touch. When that happens, and when we do that, the kingdom of God extends to the ends of the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to end with this, verse 27. Jesus ascends to the most high there, and then he says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, listen to this, shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. This, so Jesus ascends, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And know what he does? He gives a kingdom. He gives a kingdom to these people, the saints, the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and dominion shall serve and obey him. And this kingdom shall extend to the four corners of the earth. And you know how that's going to happen. It's going to happen when you and me receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his salvation, his power, and we go and start touching people's lives. Amen. Father, thank you so much that Jesus has come, that Jesus is here amongst us in power, that he saved, that he delivers, that he frees, that he gives, he fills and strengthens, and his kingdom has ministered grace and blessing and peace to us that we might go and minister grace and peace and blessing to others.
Oh, Father, be merciful to us. Stir our hearts. Grant us a vision to be on mission, even as we leave here, that we would go seeking to extend the kingdom, just as the kingdom has come to us and affected our lives. For we ask it in Christ. Amen.